Howdy. Welcome to 127 on the Mic. This sermon was recorded by our college pastor, John Davison, as we walk through the book of Daniel on Sunday nights here at 127. We believe that God has something unique to teach us and how the book of Daniel points us to how Jesus is the greater Daniel. If you have any questions, feel free to check out our website, which is fbcbryan.org slash college. Thank you. Amen. Grab a seat. Grab your Bible. Daniel chapter 8. We talked about it in Daniel chapter 7. We sort of talked about it in Daniel chapter 6. The difficulty that lies in front of us as we transition um, from what was what was kind of story into some things that are a little bit more challenging on kind of the prophetic looking forward kind of space the cool thing what daniel does is he has these visions these dreams and he really clearly explains them to us but the one thing that is echoing really loudly if you have missed it or it's your first time here uh, the last couple times that we've gathered together here's the thing that's just that's just risen to the top it's this idea that god is sovereign he, he's just, he's sovereign over everything. He's not just sovereign over believers. He's sovereign over all of creation. We see in Daniel chapter two that he sets up and he tears down kings for his glory. And so when Daniel goes into this, this vision, we're gonna call it this space, and he sees these things, the things that he sees is, is one of these John-isms that we say, it's God's fault what's happening. And a lot of times we hear the word fault and we think negative, but we wanna blame what's happening on God. And this is a good thing because he's sovereign and he's good and he's, he's holy good and he's perfect and he's loving. and he's, All of these attributes we can apply to what's happening here. Uh, the challenge of this is, is right here. If you come on Sunday night, you know this, that we, we do this thing. It's just this fancy Christian word called expository preaching, which means that we just pick a book and we start walking through it. And we don't, we don't skip over anything. We just keep walking through it. But if I were to pick a sermon series, Daniel chapter 8 wouldn't be in it. It's, it's weird, and it's challenging. And I, I told our Bible study leaders earlier, it's kind of nerdy. And so, like, I, I have to read some things. I got to be a little bit more engaged in my notes because of what is happening. Because this prophecy is just, like, literally speaking forward some things that happen. Okay? And then I'll, I love you guys in the booth, but if you don't take that score off of that back screen, I'm going to be super irritated. <laughs> and, and not because I don't care who's winning the game, but we have something a whole lot more important to focus on. And if, uh, if you care about the game that much, you have my permission to walk out, I promise you, um, because I understand that that idol is there. Okay, sorry, off my, off my, uh, great start. Kind of want to pray again. Um. Daniel chapter 8. It's tough. 
It's work. If you've been going to Bible study, you know that a lot of the, the minor prophets and the things that we're like contending with are, are really difficult. And, and that's okay. Like, I love that God puts us in this space. But here's what happens. In Daniel chapter 8, we move from the Aramaic language that has been happening from really the beginning of chapter 2. Where, where the story of God was, was being spoken to a lot of people. So it was in Aramaic. We shift back to Hebrew. Why? Because what's fixing to happen is going to be an encouragement to God's people, just directly to them. They need to, they need to hear these things. And so it goes back to their language so that they can be set up for what is about to come. Because we know, we've, we understand this, we've talked a lot about this, that our life is difficult. And there are some things that are going to happen that are challenging. And God in his grace knows that the Hebrew people are fixing to step into something difficult. And he reveals some of those those difficulties to them like just really clearly. And he's kind to do so. But, But it's kind of strange because if you were to start reading, all of a sudden you start reading about this ram. And then you start reading about this male goat. And some of you are like, aren't those the same? Um, A ram is a male sheep. A male goat is not a ram. A male goat is like a billy, uh, or they call him another word, uh, like a, a buck. A buck, that's a good word for it. Um, and so you have, this, you have this ram, you have this goat, and then you have this little horn that we're going to read about running around. And, and so you're reading this, you're going, this is strange, and I don't understand what's going on in the world. But God in his kindness and in his grace says, hey, even in a world where rams and goats and little horns are running around wild and they're ruling the nations, I'm sovereign over all of it. And this is where he's going with this. And so this chapter divides pretty easily into two major sections. You have the vision that happens through verse 14, the interpretation in verse 15. And so let's just, let's just go through it. God gives Daniel a vision, starting at verse 1. In the third year, King Belshazzar's reign, okay, if, if you want the the chronological order of Daniel, it's this, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and then you can jump over to chapter 7, and then chapter 8, and then you can go back to 5 and 6, and then go 9, 10, 11, and 12. And so we're, we're right before chapter 5 where he's speaking. He's in the third year of his reign. Remember, in the first year was the beginning of chapter 7, so it's two years after that last dream that he had. Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me earlier, I saw a vision, and as I watched... I was in the fortress city of Susa in the province of Elam. Okay, so this is, this is about 220 miles east of Babylon. It's about 100-ish miles north of the Persian Gulf. And so they're Middle East. It's modern day like uh, Iraq. And you can see this. He's in a vision. It wasn't like God just picked him up and moved him over there. It's kind of the same vision that, God, or that John had in Revelation where God had given him the, the view into something else. I saw in the vision as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. And the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him. And there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. This is speaking to one of the countries that was mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. Remember, there are four countries that he was highlighting through this story. This is Medo-Persia, the, the rise of Medo-Persia. And here is God giving 
Daniel this vision, and, and I've read like he was predicting the future. He's just, he's telling Daniel the future of what is going to happen. The rise of Medo-Persia in this country. And so he looks up, he sees this ram. This ram has two horns. One was longer than the other. The longer one came up last. The longer, stronger, higher horn here denotes Persia's greater strength and dominance. This is what he's talking about, if you want to make that note. The, the ram was the appropriate symbol for this empire in the vision, as the Persians themselves used the ram as their like signal as, or their sign or their mascot. I guess they're the Persian rams. As they, as they went into battle, this is what he's seeing. This ram under King Cyrus and his successors, they extended their empire, charging to the west, charging to the north, and to the south, and no one could stop them. No one could rescue them from, from the power of the Persians. They did whatever they wanted to, and this king becomes great. And for quite a while, they appear to be indestructible, and that is until God sends a male goat unlike anything that the world has seen. Verse 5, as I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. It's okay, it is weird. He came toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. It's a cool name for a band. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. He struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly, but when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up from its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. And so here's God to Daniel, predicting the rise of Greece and of Alexander the Great. So weird whoop there. This, this ram looks invincible until it just gets like ransacked by this male goat. We, we think about, it's like sports analogies where you go, great team, great team, great team, shows up against somebody and all of a sudden they just get kicked. And this is what is happening here. You think about even like you can zoom in and think about people like Napoleon or people like Hitler who, who rampaged for a short time thinking that they were invincible and then they come up against some sort of power, some sort of Waterloo, some sort of Eastern front in their life and it, and it crushes what they're doing. And so this male goat comes from the West so fast. What is it? Remember what it says? He, he comes from the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. He's like cartoon moving quick. Just floating across the air. He comes from the west so fast he doesn't even touch the ground. The whole earth fills his fury. And he's, he has this conspicuous horn between his eyes in verse 5. Every theologian would go, this is Greece. That's that male goat. And that horn is old Alexander. And verse 21 makes this really, really plain if you just jump over there on the next page. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. Hundreds of years before this happens, this is God predicting the rise of Greece and of Alexander the Great. We know that Alexander's life is brief, um, and he's, he dies at 33, but his influence is spreading like Greek culture. It, it's still impacting stuff today. 
especially in the Western world. And so we have Alexander here and his, his armies, they go against Persia in verses 6 to 7 with this savage fury, and he quickly and de- decisively defeats and destroys the entire Persian Empire. I love the verbs in verse 7 as you're walking through this. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. He struck the ram. He breaks his two horns and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The the goat threw him to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one to rescue. The, The lights are out on this ram when the male goat arrives on the scene and he's vanquished into the trash can of history. They're just just gone. The ram is dead. Long live the goat. I mean, that's just that's where they're at. And, and it, imagine, it, it's rare that I'm like, hey, it, sometimes it's fun to put yourself in the story. Like, like, don't be Daniel, but just imagine you're seeing this. And, and you're wondering, <laughs> what is going on? Like, God, you, you took me to this place, and I'm watching these two animals just, just destroy each other. Like, there's this strong ram, and then here comes this, this goat and ruins it. Alexander the Great and Greece, they become this great, and they're just this power that happens overnight. But at the pinnacle of their power, Alexander dies. That's when the large horn is broken. The four kings divide up his kingdom, and it's really military generals. They continue in various forms until Rome shows up on the scene. Verse 9. From one of them, a little horn emerged... This is one of the four. And grew extensively toward the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. So the south, it's growing towards Egypt. The east, going towards Persia. And then toward the beautiful land, it's just speaking of Israel. It it grew as high as the heavenly army, made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. In rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, how long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. Who's confused? Yeah, me too. Um, I, I feel that. Here is God to Daniel predicting the rise of one of the most evil rulers that we have ever seen, especially somebody who is aggressively going after Christians and trying to um, make Israel just a desolate land and wipe all of that stuff off of the planet. Antosius Epiphanes, Antosius IV, comes into rule. So you have Alexander's kingdom following his death is divided among his four generals. And then out of that, we see in verse 9, this vision grows, and it, it shows us a guy who comes out of those four um, divided parts to rule in this way. And, and here's the, he's from the uh, Seleucid Empire. 
175 B.C. to 163 B.C., severely persecuting God's people and the accuracy from which these verses describe what Daniel or describe what happens literally has scholars going, there is no chance that Daniel did this right. Uh, In fact, people would go, somebody had to go and write this after all of this happened and just credit Daniel with this vision to maybe bring some accountability uh, or uh, some sort of credibility to like what Daniel's life was about. And instead, like those of us who are right in the middle of this go, no, this is God and his great power revealing some of these things because here is this guy, Antosius. He's, he's horrible. He gives himself this title, Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. That's the name that he gives himself. His enemies call him Epinemies, E-P-I-M-A-N-E-S, which means madman. They're really close to each other. He's like, I'm God. No, take, a, take away a couple letters. You're just crazy. And this is, this is what they call him. He's, he's addressed there. And if you go over to verses 23 through 26, this little like subsection that's kind of indented in your Bible is all about this guy. In verse 24, it, like, it's crazy. It says, his power will be great, but it will not be his own. He's basically calling him Satan's puppet. He's going, you think he has great power, but in fact, Satan's ruling through him. This is what a madman this guy was. And so there's, he's this little, little horn that rises up. If you remember in chapter 7, if you were with us at retreat, it's not the same little horn. We, that little horn is speaking about the Antichrist, but this guy is pretty close. This guy does some some pretty unbelievable things. His attitudes and his actions really do kind of parallel with what we see in the, the story of the Antichrist. So here it is. Antiochus' persecution of Israel began in 170, excuse me, BC. And it would last right at seven years. As he grew in power and in pride, he made some of the army and some of the stars fall to earth and he trampled them, verse 10. He brutally persecuted God's people, which in his mind he had every right to do. I read this, says the little horn in reaching for the stars is claiming equality with God. Verses 11 and 12 bear this out. He proclaims equality with God, the prince of the heavenly army. He goes to battle with him and his reign of terror begins. And and as you continue to see, he stops the daily worship of sacrifice. He destroys the place of God's sanctuary. He throws truth, which we would go, that's God's word. He throws truth to the ground, counts it as worthless. For a time, he's successful in what he did. But verses 13 and 14 reveal that all of this will continue for... 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be restored. And so you can take the 2,300, you can divide it by like the 365-ish, and you're going to get close to seven math scholars, a little less than that. It's going to be close to seven years that he rules. Some scholars, though, will take that 2,300 evenings and mornings and combine them And so they're going, it's actually 1,150 days. So we had 1,150 evenings and 1,150 mornings together. You got 2,300. You're like, okay, math is weird. What's happening here? And in that, it basically refers to in 168 BC, the temple is destroyed by this guy. And in 164 BC, roughly three and a half years later, it is cleansed and it is restored. 
And so that's the direction that I lean. Again, this is not 100% clear here, but with uh, hopefully with some integrity and just humbleness, I would go. Verse 14, the 2300 evenings and mornings means three and a half years that this evil guy, this little horn, small man syndrome, is, is ruling. And then he destroys the temple and then God allows that to happen for 2300 evenings and mornings. And then the sanctuary is restored. The accuracy in which these things come alive in history is unparalleled. You, you can't make this stuff up. That's why people are like, hey, this had to have happened afterwards because this is exactly what happens. And all of this, when you look at that, you go, I don't fully get it, John. I'm with you. I don't fully get it. But this is what we hold on to. God knows the future. And in his grace, he's letting the Israelite people in on as many details as he can to prepare them for what is going to happen. It's just a, a good gift to them. And in that, when Daniel's sitting there and he's going, what in the world is going on? Verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, me too, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the UI, Gabriel, Explain the vision to this man. Okay, so you can just assume that God talks to his angel. Hey, Gabriel, Daniel's confused. You got to help him out here. And so he gets this voice. Now, if any Old Testament scholars, you'll know this. The book of Daniel is the only book in the Old Testament that gives angels names. They don't have names anywhere else. We just get this revelation that this is, this is Gabriel. So he approached where I was standing. When he came near, I was terrified and I fell face down. That is what you should do. If the angel shows up and God speaks to him and goes, hey, tell him what's happening. You fall face down in fear. His reply, son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. I love that. Why, why can this dude fall asleep right then? Adrenaline of fear just knocked him out. That was like his fight or, or flight mechanism was like, I'm about to die, sleep. Some of you are that way, right? Dodgeball comes in, you're just like, eh. like you just freeze like that. Just take it. I don't know why this is. I, I think maybe like just rest. Man, I've been struggling to try to figure this out, and I think you're going to appear this to me. And so, like, son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the end. Okay, I'm going to sleep. My face to the ground. And the angel doesn't let him nap. Then he touched me, and he made me stand up. No sleeping on this. Get up. He stands up, and he said, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath, because it refers to the appointed time of the end. He goes to explain what we just read. The two-horned two -horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat, sounds like a cool restaurant. Um, sorry. The, the shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. The large horn between his eyes represents the first king, Alexander. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represents the four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. You know history, if you've, you've looked at this, all of this is spot on in verse 23. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. We talked about him. 
Verse 24, his power will be great, but it will not be his own. He's Satan's puppet. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. It's basically saying he will even stand against God. Yet he will be broken, not by human hands. And like, like I love the, the promise that we see here. Just in those four words, not by human hands. You ever gotten to the point where nothing can help? No, no person and their wise words brings relief. No gift, no food, no earthly thing. You're just sitting in whatever situation and you're going, I'm helpless, I'm broken. I need something greater than anything that this world offers. And this is the point that he's at. He's going to be broken, but it's not going to be another kingdom that rises up. It's not going to be another great king or a great nation that rises up. He is going to be broken not by human hands. And God, through this revelation to Daniel, is just screaming, hey, relief is coming. Like, like know this, people. I'm revealing to you some things that you're going to step into that are going to be difficult. Nations are gonna rise up against you. Life is going to be challenging. You're going to come against somebody who is literally Satan's puppet, who's going to persecute you to the point that you do not wanna be on this planet and nothing can bring you relief, but relief is coming. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. I hate that verse. Like if I'm Daniel, I'm going, this could have just been like some weird, I had some bad fruit kind of moment. But, but instead, you're going to say, all of this is true. Now you are to seal up the vision but it, because it refers to many days in the future. We'll read verse 27 in a second. But we, we read all of that and you go, what in the world? And here, here's a couple points that we can, we can grab from the last half from verse 15 on. First, when God reveals himself to you, and, and here's the thing, God has revealed himself to you in this book we call the Bible, okay? You carry it around with you, and it's God's revelation of himself. You, you put it in your pocket in your cell phone, and it's God's revelation of himself. It has power, it's living, and it's active, and it cuts deep, and it's sharp, and all of these things, and it's useful, and it, it, all of that. And when he reveals himself to you through the word, sometimes you're going to read it and go, nothing. Sometimes you're going to read it and you're going to assume that you've got some things figured out. But the only revelation of truth in God's word requires divine assistance. You cannot, you cannot rely on yourself to like jump into this and go, I fully understand it. Okay? If all scripture is God breathed, which means it comes through the ruach, the spirit of God, then you need the spirit of God to help you understand it. Which means when you go to open it up, it's not just, I'm going to read it. I think when you open it up, you should go, God, by your spirit, would you give me understanding? And then just start leaning into it. Because Daniel, he literally is seeing and he's hearing from God. And he's going, I, I don't get it. I, I need your help. And this echoes all through Daniel's life when he has to deal with revelations of stuff. I just, I don't understand it. I need, I need your help. Understanding God's word 
requires divine assistance. It requires the Spirit. And so just ask him for it. Daniel's terrified when Gabriel approaches. He falls down. He falls asleep. He's woken up. He's like, here, understand this. He needed that to help him understand it. But also this promise that we see here in in this revelation to the Israelite nation, but also to us. When we see God's word or when you understand God's word, it is helping you for things to come. This is important. Like the reason that we engage in God's word, because it reveals God's character and his nature to us. It allows us to grow the knowledge and understanding of him. It allows us to look more like his son, Jesus. All of those are true. But it is also something that prepares us for your next step. It prepares you for your day. It's preparing you for your life. And sometimes in ways that you're not going to know until later on down the road. But understanding God's word prepares you for what is coming. Like, I love this. Gabriel starts talking and the bro goes to sleep. Gabriel touches him, gets him up to his feet. And he said, hey, let me tell you the conclusion of this for the, for the time of wrath. I need you up. I need you ready. I need the, we got to be moving here because I'm going to tell you about some things that are to come. And I need you to be prepared for the things that are coming. Verse 20 through 22 kind of enlightens us on the, on the characters of the vision. We already covered those things, where they're coming up from, where they're, where they're rising from. And they're all future to Daniel. These aren't things that are walking in now. These are future for him. And so he knows the things that have come and he can speak those to the people. Remember, he's writing in Hebrew at this point. So the Israelite nation can be ready for that. And then, you know, 23, it turns the corner to this uh, evil tiny horn that ruthless king, he's skilled in intrigue. Um, the, the ESV, I love this, it calls him a king of bold face. Now, that's just a cool characteristic of it. He's just a king of bold face, but basically it just means he's arrogant. He's filled with pride. He's going to arise near the end of the kingdoms because mighty Rome, of course, is on the way. And so th- this is going to happen when the, when the rebels, these are God's rebellious people, have reached the full measure of their sin. The words he and his are really prominent in these verses, especially 24 and 25. And it, it highlights the ruthless nature of the king. We've read it, but I want you to hear it one more time. His power will be great. He will cause outrageous destruction, and he's going to succeed in whatever he does. He's going to win battles. He's going to be victorious. He's going to gain power. He's going to gain wealth. He, verse 24, he will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He's going to defeat a bunch of opponents on the way. Verse 25, he will cause deceit to prosper. And Tosius is this shrewd, deceptive, stopping at nothing to further his agenda, prosperous in almost everything he touches, double-faced, arrogant, um, all of those things. He's just, he's cunning in his influence. Verse 25, he will in his own mind exalt himself. We already said it, arrogance and pride are the great descriptors of this guy. Verse 25, he will destroy many in a time of peace. Like he's, he's going against people even when they're not fighting him. That's how ruthless he is. Verse 25, he will even stand against the prince of princes God, yet he will be broken. His reign is going to be short. It's going to have a devastating downfall, all at the hands of the God whom he is mocking. This is beautiful. 
His downfall is not at human hands, but at God's who he's trying to mock in all of this. And, and despite the gravity and the grotesqueness of the description that we have here, Gabriel affirms this vision to be true. Daniel, write this down, seal it up, preserve it for those who are to come. Let this echo. And so I read this and I go, I sort of get why, but, but did the Bible get this right? Like in, in Daniel chapter 8? I mean, we know from history, if you read this, they, they, he nailed it. Brief historical summary is like, yeah, all of that's right. This guy was violent against the Jews. He hated them. He was determined to just eliminate them from their region completely. 168, he destroys Jerusalem. He murdered, you can go back and look in history, he murdered tens of thousands of people. He defiles the temple. He, when he overtakes them in history, when he overtakes Jerusalem, he offers a pig on the altar. For our Jewish friends in the room, that's a no-no. That's how he was going after them. He erected a shrine in the altar to, to, to the God of Jupiter. He closed down the temple for worship. He sold 40,000 Jews into slavery. He destroyed every copy of the Torah, every copy of Scripture that could be found, and he murdered everyone to be found in possession of a Bible. That point, not the Bible, of the Torah, of God's Word. He killed them. He restored to every conceivable torture to force the Jews to renounce their religion, and God is giving the Jewish people a heads up that it's coming. All of this leads to the Maccabean Revolt in 164. Those of you who know this history, Judas Maccabee, which, which means the hammer. It's a cool nickname he had. Leads the Jews to victory. He leads them to the restoration of the religion. That's what today the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, which is the Festival of Lights, in, in remembrance of that event. That story is referenced in John chapter 10 when the light of the world walks into the temple. And here is the story of this evil king that is recorded in the Jewish book of 2 Maccabees. It says this, But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him an incurable and unseen blow. As soon as he ceased speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief and with sharp internal tortures and that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others with many and strange inflictions. Yet he did not stop in any way his insolence, but was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to hasten the journey. So it came about that he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along, and the fall was so, whore, was so hard as to torture every limb in his body. God, God gave him some sort of like intestinal disorder that was crippling, but in his arrogance, he said, no, I'm going to keep going, breathing fire and hatred against the Jews, giving orders to go faster and to kill more of them. And as he's doing that, God knocks him out of the chariot so hard he breaks all of his bones. This is his end that the Jewish people celebrate. And some of you are like, hurrah. Like, yeah. Some sort of gigam in there. I don't know, like what we would do. And just like that, the evil, ruthless king 
is gone. And, and here's the challenge, because I read this and I'm going, what, what in the world? Because I have to contend with the God who's good, who, who is, is for his people. And he's telling them, this is what you're going to walk through. This is going to be difficult. These are the guys who are going to rule over you. And, and he doesn't, we know the end. Thankfully, we're past it. We know the end of it. The Jewish people can celebrate the end of it. But, but they read this. Can you imagine before? Hey, Daniel's got that book. Remember, we read it. It was in Aramaic. That was weird. When he shifted to Hebrew, maybe we should start paying attention. And then right when he shifts to Hebrew, it's just like, oh, you're going to be ruled. It's going to be difficult. Alexander the Great's coming after you. And this Antosius guy is going to wreck havoc for you. He's going to murder thousands of you. This is what you get. And what should the response of understanding God's word in this like push us to? Because often we go, God's word is filled with hope and it's something that should motivate. And all of those things are true. But verse 27, we see this. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. This is his response. Understanding God's word clearly can be personally overpowering. What, what Daniel saw wipes him out. He, he's done. He's overcome and he lays sick for days. The NIV says that I was worn out and I lay exhausted for several days. Daniel had been deeply distressed. He was even terrified by the vision that happened in, in chapter 7. Like we understand how bad that was. And he gets here, he is completely undone by this vision in chapter 8. It's more than he can bear. And his only comfort is the reality that God was in control and that his kingdom would eventually come. But, but to know that there would be so much evil in the world as he reads through this, so much suffering for God's, for God's people before it arrived was, was overwhelming for him. It was too much, at least for a little while. And, and I believe that some of you, as you engage with God's word and you, you read the promises of God, I think often this, I do this when I think about lost people and I, I have a clearer understanding of the reality of hell and what's going to happen. And so I'm undone for, for lost people and I'm bothered by that. Often when we get to this point of truly understanding God's word, this is probably going to be our response. Like in the, in the cheesy way, there's nothing better than like an after retreat or after camp nap, Right? That just hits different. And a lot of times, a lot of times we like to blame that on just like staying up too late, which a lot of you, that was true. But, but when you combine that with, with opportunities where you just sit underneath the teaching of God's word for extended period of time, more than what you normally do, I think you just sleep different. I, I, I think there's, you're tired in a, in a different way. Sometimes you're undone by what God is doing, by the spirit moving in your life. And you maybe lay sick for days. You're just exhausted from that. But then this, like that can be our proper response, but we've talked about this a little bit. He left you on this planet for a reason. And so the proper understanding of God's word has to come through the Spirit's help. The, the proper understanding of God's word prepares you for maybe what is coming in your life. The proper understanding of God's word can be overpowering, but then you have to take this step. Then I got up. Then I got up. And I went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision, and I could not understand it. But I have a calling. I have some things I got to do. I'm left on this planet for a reason. I got, I got a job. 
I'm going to engage with this country. Not only am I going to record this for my people, but, but I got work to do. I, he, he gets up. He returns to the work that God had called him to do. He doesn't retire from the world in view of this evil that is coming, nor does he go the opposite way and live um, on this like high visionary excitement of like just the craziness, the, the camp high kind of thing. He just goes back to his work. And his attitude here shows us a really important biblical principle that you need to hold on to as college students. That in view, in view of what the future holds for you, you must live holy lives now. Daniel catches a glimpse of the realities that would take place centuries later. Those events are are the shadows of conflict that is to come between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the world. And, and one day, Daniel knew this somehow to be true, that Christ was going to return. The Antichrist is going to be broken without human hands. And he can walk in continued confidence and faith with a clear understanding of God's word that God is sovereign. And so we look at this and we can read passage after passage in God's word that echo the same thing that is just this. Do the king's business. Walk, and when I say king, it's not the king that he's serving. He has the capital K, king. Do the, do the king's business. You walk in, obe in obedience. You live holy lives. You purify yourself. John Wesley, I, I read this story in, in preparation for this, one of the, the books that talks a lot about Daniel, John Wesley, famous pastor, was, was going to a, preach, a preaching engagement one day, and he was stopped by a stranger and asked him, he said, hey, John, what, what would you do if you knew that Christ was going to return at noon tomorrow? What would you do with your life if you knew that Christ was coming back at noon tomorrow? So Wesley reached into his saddlebag, he pulls out his diary, he reads out the engagements that he had for the rest of that day, the engagements that he had for the morning and the next day, and he says, this, dear sir, is what I would do. Because his knowledge of the Lord's future kingdom and future reign allowed him to live already for that kingdom. The things that he scheduled were purposeful enough to go, if God chooses to come back tomorrow, I'm living my life with purpose. I didn't waste moments. I didn't schedule wasted moments in my life. If he's going to come back at noon tomorrow, I'm going to do the things that I've already scheduled to do. I'm living for that kingdom. I'm living for the, the king's purpose. This is what Daniel said. I was overcome and I lay sick for days and I got up and I went about the king's business. When it's difficult, you go, I'm just going to be about the king's business and living for the king. That's the spirit of Daniel. It was so surprising. Like we read that, we go, like we can't be surprised by the fact that his life makes a difference. We talked about it. It, it appeared to be a failure in, in chapter 6 and chapter 7. But he just goes about the king's business, and his life makes a difference. And so this vision that is greatly disturbing him, can't understand it. We read it, and we go, I don't fully get it. Daniel didn't let it paralyze him, and nor should we, as we understand more clearly God's word and live our life on mission. We can't be paralyzed. We go about our job. We trust in our God and live out this example to all of us. And so here, here's the truth, and then the band's going to come up. We're going to worship a little bit. The truth for all of us is this. 
as a Christ follower, things are going to be difficult for you. Okay, hear that. As a Christ follower, sometimes you're promised biblically that things are going to be difficult for you, but the final say for your life is not had by some ram. The final say in your life is not had by some sheep. The final say in your life is not had by some little horn. The final say for your life is had by the lamb that was slain. That's it. And your mission is to go about the king's business. When you get it, and sometimes when you don't. We go about the king's business when it's easy, and we go about the king's business when it's difficult. We go about the king's business when you fully understand your clearly outlined next steps and you go about the king's business when none of it makes sense. We just, we just go about the king's business. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll respond. God, you're good and I've prayed it a lot, but I thank you for challenging parts of scripture. We thank you for things that we read and we go, what in the world? God, and we thank you that your plan oftentimes for me doesn't make sense. It's hard for me to put the characteristic on a good God that he's going to allow this evil guy to rise up and wreak havoc for his chosen people. But your purposes are not in the way that we would write them. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your plans are things that we don't understand. You're doing things that we can't fathom. And so when it makes sense, may we chase after you. When it doesn't make sense, may we chase after you. And so for believers in the room, may that be our heart's cry. I just want to be about your business. And for unbelievers in the room, may we just try to figure out what that is. We ask the right questions. We recognize that life is difficult and it's impossible without you. But since you hold our future in your hands, because you are sovereign, you set up and you tear down kings for your glory. God, we can trust you with our next steps. And so would you lead us now by your spirit and whatever those next steps look like, may be blessed in our response. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.